The Mystery of the Supernatural by Henri de Lubac, Chapter 11, The Unknown Desire. If there is one thing that the foregoing analyses have made clear than any other, it is that while it may be quite legitimate to argue from completely abstract hypotheses, it ultimately neither explains nor justifies anything. It is not in the order of pure possibilities that our essential problems will be solved. It remains indispensable in any hypothesis to be quite clear about this question of gratuitousness within the order that actually exists. To this fact, we must keep returning. By tending in a different direction, that part of modern Western theology which we have had to criticize, not for what it says, but for what it does not say, is grasping at shadows rather than the reality. The explanations I have given have undoubtedly shown this. But there remains one objection still to be considered. However natural, however real it may be, the desire for the vision of God is in no case what determines God's actually giving that vision. God is not governed by our desire. The relationship between the two things must, in fact, be the opposite one. It is the free will of the giver which awakens the desire. This is incontestable. There can be no question of anything being due to the creature. But one may perhaps say, it remains true nonetheless that once such a desire exists in the creature, it becomes the sign, not merely of a possible gift from God, but of a certain gift. It is the evidence of a promise inscribed and recognized in the being's very self. Is one not then right to conclude from the existence of that desire to the effective reality of the gift? St. Thomas certainly seems to reason in this way. But if so, then man is surely arriving by the use of his natural reason alone at the knowledge that he has made for the vision of God, which seems to make the effective supernatural become the object of natural knowledge. It is clear that this fresh objection is not concerned with the gratuitousness of the divine offer, but rather with the mysterious nature of the dogma from which we learn of the offer's existence. One may perhaps recall the discussion which sprang up not long ago about the mystery of our supernatural elevation. Pere Agai de Brogli had been accused of rationalizing the mystery because he wished to demonstrate by reason the natural desire to see God. He had no difficulty in refuting the accusation. He showed that he was quite right in thinking that natural reason can recognize in us a radical aptitude for supernatural happiness. In fact, in his theory, this power of reason was not the ability to know either the essence of such happiness or the fact that we were actually called to enjoy it. There was, therefore, no cause to show so much suspicion of a thesis so limited in scope, as though it unfolded some unheard-of secret. It was quite wrong to cut short the discussion by appealing to the 19th-century condemnation of Froschammer, or indeed to any other decision of the magisterium. The suspicion would, however, be well-founded and possibly even necessary if we were to combine the thesis I have been defending with the one supported by de Broglie. 
For this would mean declaring that natural reason has the power to reveal to us that we are in fact called to the vision of God. But is the desire for the beatific vision really, in its full nature and force, able to be known by reason alone? This I do not believe. Remembering always what St. Thomas himself says, those things that are expected above reason and the final end of men. I want to remain firmly within theology. I'm not trying to establish a philosophical thesis, but to study a dogmatic statement and all that it implies. I do not say that the knowledge gained by reason of a natural desire, outside any context of faith, proves strictly that we are called to the beatific vision, and that therefore we can naturally attain the certainty that we have been created for that end. On the contrary, I say that the knowledge that is revealed to us of that calling, which makes us certain of that end, leads us to recognize within ourselves the existence and nature of that desire. People frequently reason as though all the mystery were on God's side, and there was nothing in man that eludes the grasp of common experience or natural reasoning. Our whole nature should, in theory at least, be comprehensible to us, and we have the key to understanding all its manifestations. But this is somewhat illusory. I do not think that anyone who really thought about it could maintain anything so clear-cut. Man himself is very deep. Valde profundus est ipse homo. Man is a mystery. He is so in his very essence, in his nature. Not because the infinite fullness of the mystery which touches him is actually in himself, for it is strictly inexhaustible, but because he is fundamentally a poor soy, purely in reference to that fullness. When we have said everything the mind can take in, everything definable that is to be said about ourselves, we have as yet said nothing, unless we have included in every statement the fact of our reference to the incomprehensible God. And that reference, and therefore our nature itself in the most fundamental sense, is not really understood at all unless we freely allow ourselves to be caught up by that incomprehensible God. No one must think that we can understand man otherwise than by grasping him in his movement towards the blessed obscurity of God. This teaching, recalled recently by Karl Rahner, was one beloved of the fathers of the church, both Latin and Greek. In its wider interpretation, as in its origins, it is not specifically Christian, but it acquires a specific character in relation to the doctrine of Revelation. Man, the fathers tell us, is in the image of God, not merely because of his intellect, his free will, his immortality, not even because of the power he has received to rule over nature. Beyond and above all this, he is so ultimately because there is something incomprehensible in his depths. Who has known the mind of the Lord? asks St. Paul. For my part, adds St. Gregory of Nyssa, I also ask, who has known his own mind? Those who think themselves capable of grasping the nature of God would do well to consider whether they have looked into themselves. Our mind bears the imprints of the incomprehensible nature through the mystery that it is to itself.
If the nature of the image could be grasped, then it would be an image no longer. And similarly, St. Ephraim, who then can enter into himself and understand himself? And St. Zeno of Verona, in no way can the substance of nature be grasped by human operations. No one knows it save him who made it. The image of God is necessarily incomprehensible and invisible. And St. Maximus the Confessor. The rational creature does not naturally know its own roots, those deep and strong roots which support it. Furthermore, in the opening which grace operates in its being, it understands that it cannot understand itself. And St. Augustine in his Confessions. Although no man knows the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him, yet there is something of man which the inner spirit of man itself does not know. So great and wonderful is man's nature. So great is the deep that answers to the deep of God himself. Following the fathers and the writers of the 12th century, the early scholastics gave frequent explicit approval to this view. The position of Duns Scotus is an interesting one to note. He explains it in an important text, the controversy between philosophers and theologians as to the necessity for revealed doctrine, with which he begins his great work, the De Ordinatione. According to the philosophers, he says, there is no such thing as supernatural perfection. To every passive power of nature, there corresponds in nature an active principle, and there is, therefore, no need to imagine any superior order in which man might need to be given revelation. But in arguing thus, by natural reason alone, the philosophers can only err or remain in doubt about the end in particular. To all the arguments and repetitions, but one answer is needed. They accept that our nature, or our intellective potency, is naturally knowable to us. This is false, under the very and specific rule, ratio, under which it is ordered to such an end, is completely capable of grace, and has God as the most perfect object. In fact, our soul is not known to us, nor is our nature in its present condition, except under some general rule that is beyond the reach of the senses. Abstrahibili a sensibus. Man needs revelation, then, in order to know distinctly what is his last end. If it is objected against this, that man in the state of established nature can know his own nature, and therefore also the end of his nature, I answer, it would require to say that the knowledge of established man is such that it is different from other knowledge. But at least in respect to the wayfaring man in his present condition, it is called supernatural knowledge because it exceeds its natural faculty. I say that it is natural according to the state of fallen nature. Duns Scotus speaks here only of man in his present condition pro statu isto, an expression he often uses. It is only of such a man that the philosophers speak. It is only in connection with him that the need for revelation is queried.
Elsewhere, he concedes, though without subjecting the matter to any critical argument, that in a less imperfect state, natural reason might have been able to know more. Here, in writing to refute those who rejected the faith, he wisely limits the field of discussion, at least in his present condition. Saltem pro statu isto. And this is all I wish to quote from him here. Without entering into the windings of the long, subtle, and complicated dissertation which takes up the whole first part of this prologue, I would merely indicate that in his view the reasons brought against the opinion of the philosophers about our final end could only have been discovered after the event. They presuppose that we have first been enlightened by supernatural revelation, and therefore, in reality, these are but theological persuasions, from beliefs to belief. Ex creditis ad creditum. The tradition was to be carried on in the 16th century by such major theologians as Soto and Toletus. In his treatise, De Natura et Gratia, Soto speaks of that light to which we have no access, where both our end and the goal of our actions are hidden. In his commentary on the Summa Theologica, Toledas declares, as usual in opposition to Cajetan, if man knew his nature perfectly, he would know that his end is the vision of God. He does not, any more than St. Thomas, restrict this statement or this supposition to the hypothesis of a so-called elevated nature. But he also says, correspondingly, that it is not surprising that the nature of our soul cannot be wholly known to us, since it is spiritual and very close to that of the angels. This, as we know, is also the constant position of the Augustinian school connected with Giles of Rome. Some of its members express the matter with particular clarity. Thus, Gerard of Siena, 1336. The rational creature is so good that there is nothing by which it may be happy but God alone. This nature that is capable of God cannot be ordered to be quieted by enjoyment, fruitione, in anything below God. The rational creature is of this kind, therefore, etc. The major premise is evident because potency, which is capable of a greater good, is never quieted in a lesser good. This reasoning in respect to the minor proposition proceeds from beliefs. It is really this same teaching, though in less strictly metaphysical language, that St. Francis of Sales is trying to give to Theotime in his Treatise on the Love of God. We have a natural inclination towards the sovereign good, in consequence of which our heart has a certain inward hastening and a constant restlessness, without being able to be appeased in any way, nor to stop showing that its full satisfaction and lasting content are lacking. But when our sacred faith has represented to our mind the beautiful object of its natural inclination, then, Theotime, what comfort, what joy, what a thrill there is throughout our soul, which then, as though completely overwhelmed at the spectacle of such glorious beauty, cries lovingly, O oh, how beautiful thou art, 
O my beloved, O how beautiful thou art. The human heart tends to God by its natural inclination without properly knowing who he is. But when it finds him at the fount of faith and sees him so good, so beautiful, so gentle and so kind to all, and so disposed to give himself as sovereign good to all who want him, then what joys and holy movements there are in the mind to be united forever to that supremely lovable goodness. I have at last found, says the soul thus moved, I have found what I longed for. We sometimes feel certain joys which seem to come quite unexpectedly, with no apparent cause, and which are often the forerunners of some greater joy. Then, when that joy arrives, our hearts receive it with open arms, and recalling the delight they had felt without realizing its cause, they then know that it was a kind of forerunner of the happiness that has now arrived. Thus, my dear Theotime, our heart has for so long inclined to its sovereign good. It did not know to what that inclination tended, but as soon as faith has shown it, then it sees that this was what its soul sought, what its mind looked for, and its inclination gazed at. And I myself do not fully grasp all that I am. We do not know all that we are, nor are we exactly what we know. Light and life, word and experience are not united. This consideration of a sensitive philosopher applies primarily to the very depths of the soul. There is, says another philosopher, in man's pre-comprehension of himself, a wealth of meaning which thought can never equal. Certain depths of our nature can be opened only by the shock of revelation. Then, with a new clarity, deep calls upon deep. By revealing himself to us, Berul used to say, God has revealed us to ourselves. Every light cast on God is at the same time reflected back onto man. Thus, just as the Buddhist believes he can understand in a single intuition both pain and its remedy, the origin of evil and the way to deliverance from it, so by perceiving something of the holiness and love of God, we become aware of our own sinfulness. Commenting on Isaiah, Origen says that the prophet began to see his wretchedness at the moment of beginning to glimpse the glory of God. William of St. Thierry says the same thing in a more general way. Never is the mode of human imperfection better grasped than by the light of the countenance of God in the mirror of divine vision. And Marie de l'Incarnation says, The purity of his spirit shows us the impurity of ours. Similarly, it is by the promise given us of seeing God face to face that we really learn to recognize our desire. Of course, the two cases are not completely parallel. In the first case, we are dealing with a holy religious reality. And furthermore, the correspondence is direct and is established totally by way of contrast. In the second, a reflection of a metaphysical kind arrives at what the revealed object implies, beginning with a fact, the promise that we shall see God face to face as a free gift a promise that is part of the Christian revelation, 
one examines how this can be possible, and by its light one interprets observations or inductions whose precise bearing could not previously be recognized. It remains that the desire of the mind, which does not fall within the scope of empirical psychology, is not deduced from purely rational premises either. The natural inclination to the sovereign good of which Francis of Sales spoke was only translated into consciousness first under the aspect of a desire for happiness in general, a desire which might not merely mistake its object, but even pursue quite worthless objects. It was this same distinction that fascinated Bonaventure, the distinction between the knowledge of beatitude in general and the knowledge of beatitude in particular, the former being inborn, the latter given to us by faith. It was a distinction generally held in scholasticism. Similarly, the movement of the intellect, never satisfied with the knowledge it has, constantly rising from cause to cause, can be interpreted as a sign of the Spirit's desire. And as we know, this was a consideration particularly dear to the mind of St. Thomas. But in order to interpret that sign so well, to discern so clearly in it the desire to see the first cause in his very essence, it was surely necessary for St. Thomas to be at least oriented by his faith. It must, at least, as Pere Roland Gosselin points out, be that faith which gives him complete certainty in his interpretation. For the actual desire, though it certainly exists in every man, being inherent in his nature, is not in him personaliter, as the early writers say. It is only in him simpliciter, or naturaliter. Or, if one admits that it is not entirely unknown because of its spiritual character, it may be said that, like the soul, it is the object of a knowledge that is called habitual, built into the soul itself, as Bonaventure put it, or, as he also says, the object of a knowledge arising from a sense of need, but not of any actual and positive knowledge. Such a desire then takes nothing from the character of the marvelous and incredible newness of the revelation in Christ of our final end. It makes that end no less utterly ineffable. Here we can agree with Cajetan. This end is hidden from us because it is the supernatural end of our soul. This is what I have tried to show in an earlier chapter. But for us, unlike Cajetan, it is not the absence of any desire that is the reason for that ignorance. Rather, it is the depth of our desire. I would rather say with Pere Rousselot, that which, were there no divine offer, would merely be a seeking for something in impenetrable darkness, can, thanks to the light of faith, be expressed in a clear series of syllogisms. What do you know, asked Meister Eckhart, of the possibilities God has given human nature? Those who have written of the soul's capacity have not gone beyond the point to which their natural reason takes them. They have never got to the bottom, and many things must be hidden from them, must remain unknown. The bride only knows herself when she answers the bridegroom's invitation. 
Berul was right in saying that the movement imprinted by the power of the Creator deep within his creature, that movement that is natural to the soul, is hidden from it in this life, just as the soul is hidden from itself. It sees neither its being nor what is at the depths of its being. It is Jesus Christ who reveals within us someone whom we do not know. It is Christ who speaks our soul to us. Thus, the mysterious nature of the dogma remains unimpaired. It remains the king's secret. Although God is the final end in consequence and the first in the intention of the natural appetite, Nevertheless, it is not fitting that it be first in the knowledge of the human mind, which is ordered to the end. Rather, it is fitting that it be first in the knowledge of the ordainer, just as is the case with other things that tend to their own end by natural appetite. Nevertheless, it is known from the beginning and is directed in some generality, according as the soul strives to well-being and well-living, which exist only when God has the soul. It is hardly surprising, then, that beatitude, the only beatitude, transcends all rational investigation. St. Thomas himself, starting from his principle that a desire of nature can never be in vain, knows that he can only arrive at a sure conclusion because he is reasoning within faith. Like St. Bonaventure, whom we have quoted, he knows that the desire bestowed, desiderium inditum, or innate, is not of itself explicit and conscious, since he sets out to make it explicit by showing that its end can only be the vision of God. And he also knows that in the conscious desire for happiness, God is at first desired only implicitly. There is much truth in what Cajetan and Banyas say, though each in his own way draws conclusions that go too far. The divine Thomas proceeds as a theologian, although he uses natural reasons as aids, quasi ancilis. This appears particularly true in the Summa Contra Gentilis, which is, in the eyes of one of its recent commentators, Anton C. Pegis, a theological work profoundly mingled with a theological enterprise and no less visibly governed by a precise theological plan. In fact, one entire chapter of the second book is devoted to distinguishing the philosopher's point of view from that of the theologian. It is, then, as a theologian, like Duns Scotus, that St. Thomas sets out to develop a complete and loftily philosophical apologetic, if I may be forgiven the term. In his own special way, he imitates the saints, of whom he says elsewhere in a different context, the reasons employed by holy men to prove things that are of faith are not demonstrations, they are persuasive arguments showing that what is proposed to our faith is not impossible. These reasons may be just reasons of convenience, or not even that, when it comes to the truths of pure faith, such as the Incarnation or the Trinity, the truths which St. Thomas reserves for the fourth and final book of the Summa Contra Gentilis. 
but he sees the problem of beatitude as being an intermediate stage. There he does proceed by way of rational demonstration. This, however, is only secondary. The demonstration moves into the area of investigation of reason within faith. And on the other hand, a rational demonstration, however convincing to reason, always falls short when the truth which it is by way of demonstrating is a mystery of faith. Therefore, it is only when the intrinsic possibility of the vision of God has once been admitted by faith that the argument based on the impossibility for natural desire to be vain comes to apply to that truth of faith, so that to deny that possibility would not merely be to contradict a truth of faith, but would actually go counter to reason. This explanation of pere dox, which harmonizes with the general interpretation of the Summa Contra Gentilis given by Anton C. Pegis, seems to provide us with the means of reconciling opinions which diverge from each other by each stressing one part of the text or one aspect of Thomist teaching. That teaching is certainly complex, and I would hardly claim here to define it fully, but only to point out that St. Thomas did see the problem we are concerned with in this chapter. Even if reason can suspect the existence of that beatitude, it cannot suspect its nature. Thus, as soon as they wished to speak about it, the philosophers were grossly and inevitably mistaken. These wonders which God intends for us at the end of time are above reason, just as they are above anything we have any right to. Natural forces are not enough either to conceive them or to desire them. Now, eternal life is a good exceeding the proportion of created nature, since it exceeds its knowledge and desire. That is the first reason why we need divine revelation and divine grace. But furthermore, even when the natural desire for the vision of God, which we must remember is not the same as an elicited desire, has been recognized, defined, and analyzed, its end is still only known aliquo modo. No more than we can ever desire it truly sufficiently can we conceive it in any adequate way. Even in the light it gets from God, and at whatever phase one looks at of its intellectual or spiritual life, the believing and hoping soul is ultimately left facing an intrinsically impenetrable mystery. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has the heart of man conceived. We may recall comments of St. Bernard, St. Thomas Aquinas, and St. Robert Bellarmine on these words of St. Paul's. Ineffable words, to be sure, even though he does not give me something to hear, still he gives me something to desire, and let it be pleasing to get a whiff, ordorare, of what it is not granted to hear. No one can see glory but he who is in glory. There remains both the desire and the intellect of those who are not in it. This indeed is the manna left us, and the new name written on the stone, which no one who receives it knows. The vision of God in which eternal life properly consists is not only a supernatural thing, but exceeds 
even every created nature, so that it can be neither known nor grasped nor understood unless God himself reveals it. The eye hath not seen, etc.